Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. So whenever I hear 1 Corinthians 5, I have this extremely clear memory of visiting a church in Los Angeles when I was still um, a very new Christian. I had gone uh, with a friend. It was a church that he was just starting to connect with. He was excited about. And I was like, yeah, man, I'd love to go with you. Um, The visit did not start particularly well, um, because after the first song, they sat everybody in the church down and then invited those of us who were visiting for the first time to stand up so that the person who brought us could introduce us to the congregation. Ironically, that was the moment where I decided I was never coming back, um, where I was like, yeah, no, this is not uh, working for me. Uh, But I was like, okay, that was unexpectedly awkward. That felt like junior high dance level of awkwardness, but I'm like, at least we've gotten all of the difficult parts out of the way, and now we're just going to sing and study God's Word, and it's all going to be great. And we took communion at the end, and things were on the upswing until after communion, the pastor stood up, and I remember him saying, hey, I think, as as some of you may be aware, sister so-and-so no longer lives with her husband and has moved in with her boyfriend. And the second he said that, it was instantly clear that when he said, as some of you may be aware, what he meant to say is, as all y'all have been talking about for a really long time, this situation is happening. And I just need to let you know that we have taken the step of sending her a letter, letting her know that she is no longer welcome here on a Sunday morning. And I need you to know about that. Because if you even run into her in the grocery store, you better not talk to her. Like, we are going to have nothing to do with her until she repents. And again, I remember sitting there being like, I'm really sure she's going to miss you guys and all the, like, judgment, shame, and condemnation that seems to come along with you. Like, I'm sure that's going to do the trick. Like, this seems like an awesome way um, to get her back in the church. And I just remember, again, I was this new Christian, and I was so confused Because I had come to faith in Jesus because I was told there was this loving God who was willing to forgive and offer grace and mercy that I desperately needed. And then it felt like there was a community of people that were intentionally turning their back on somebody who, yeah, was making some bad choices, but was going through a tough time. And I was like, how is that consistent with the God that I read about in the Bible? I just don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I don't want anything to do with a church that would treat somebody like this. And and I'm saying that because I'm like, if you had similar reactions listening to the passage, I 100% get that. See, what I was missing that day, and by the way, just to let you know up front, we'll kind of say more at the end, but we would handle that a little bit differently here at Restoration City. But when you read 1 Corinthians 5, you're like, man, I mean, I do see where they got the idea from. Like, even, even if we would differ in some of the specific application, you're like, I mean, I I see where they got it from. But what we often don't pay attention to is Paul's overall point in this passage of Scripture. What we do is we turn it into sort of a procedure manual for dealing with serious, unrepentant sin in the church. And obviously, we're going to have to go there. But 
what I was lacking that Sunday and what is so frequently lacking when we talk about this passage is an understanding of how the disciplining of an individual member of a community fits with the overall point that Paul is trying to make in 1 Corinthians 5. Because when we look at the entirety of the passage, when you look at the whole chapter as a whole, it becomes really clear that although this man and his sin are absolutely the inciting incident that brings Paul to where he's going to go in this letter, you realize this man is by no means the main character in the passage. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is focused on the church. Paul is talking to this community in Corinth, and he is asking them to wrestle with some really difficult questions about how they see themselves. In a nutshell, I think what Paul is asking this church to consider is whether or not they have a vision that is actually worth protecting. Because he's trying to give the church a very clear vision for who they are meant to be. It's the same vision that you and I could rally around today. In fact, it's the same vision that I believe we are called to embody as a local church in South Arlington, Virginia in 21st century America. The headline in this passage is that Paul sees the local church as a group of people who come together to create a community of sincerity and truth in the midst of a world of evil and malice. That's the vision. Can we become a community of sincerity and truth in a world of evil and malice? And what he's saying is, hey, if you can buy into that vision, then you're going to have to protect it. You're going to have to protect it when it's threatened, and that's going to bring us back to this man. But before we get to this man and his sin and how we would handle something similar in our church, I really want to show you what Paul is after when I describe this community of sincerity and truth. Because if we don't get the vision here, none of the rest of it's going to make any sense. So let's go back to verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul covers a tremendous amount of real estate here in three short verses. He is going to take us from some Old Testament teaching about leaven to the Passover, to the cross of Jesus Christ in three short verses. And if we can follow the train of thought that he is laying out for us here, we will get a compelling vision for us as a local church. So let's start with the most basic observation. Leaven is not yeast. Right? They perform similar functions, but you can go down to the grocery store after church and buy yeast. You can't go anywhere and buy Leaven. They're very similar, but leaven, what it was is you would take a chunk of dough from the previous day's batch of bread and you would set it aside. And when you took that chunk of dough and you set it aside, it would start to ferment. 
And then you would take it and you would put that into today's batch of dough and it would start to rise the bread, very much like yeast. But leaven was different because then you would put another chunk off, start from that, go from there, go from there, go from there. The Old Testament was incredibly clear that once a year, all of the Israelites were to cleanse their home and the temple of leaven. It seems like this is one of those places where the Old Testament law is designed to protect the health and the welfare of the community. Because you let that leaven go too long, and this thing that was designed to, you know, raise the bread was going to become a source of contamination. People were going to start to get sick. So both the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy contain very specific provisions of when it's time to get rid of the leaven. So there is this point that a small amount of leaven will impact the whole, and you can see how that's going to start to apply to this man and what he's doing. But more often than not, when Scripture talks about leaven, it means it in a cautionary way. Yeah, a little bit is going to affect the whole, but it could end up affecting the whole in a way that's damaging, in a way that's bad for the health of the community. So Paul takes that and he says, hey, similarly, as a church, we need to be willing to clean out the old leaven. But he's like, actually, let me take that thought and let me expand it a little bit because to talk about leaven in the context of bread and unleavened bread, is to get everybody in the room thinking about the Passover, right? This famous night when God gives Israel very specific instructions of what they need to do so that they will not be harmed when the angel of death passes over Egypt and finally Pharaoh agrees to let the people of God go so that they can worship God and be with God, right? It is this reminder that there is a night in the history of Israel where the blood of a lamb put on the wooden doorposts of their home was used to deliver and free Israel so that they could be with their God, so that they could worship Yahweh, and that they could enjoy His presence. And Paul says, okay, if you can take that, remember Passover, and they ate unleavened bread because they were going to leave really quickly. He's like, hey, if you can remember the day where the blood of a lamb was put on the doorposts of a house, that should remind us as Christians of the day where the blood of the lamb was placed not on the wooden doorframe of a house, but on the wood of a cross as Jesus goes. And he offers himself in our place for the forgiveness of sins, but dialing back to this Passover idea, Paul is reminding us of the fullness of the gospel, that absolutely the gospel involves the forgiveness of our sins. It involves Jesus dying in our place, but the gospel is not simply a message of forgiveness. It is also an invitation to pass into new life with God where we are in relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth, where we are transformed from the inside out, and where we begin to establish new communities that are marked by the presence of God, that are marked by a desire to be formed into His image and likeness, and are marked by this mission that's supposed to encompass the whole wide world. And Paul is saying, if you see that, you're starting to understand why The church needs to be serious about sin within 
our own walls, that we are called to be, in Paul's words, a community of sincerity and truth. And that idea of sincerity in the original language probably most literally means that you could live with a pure heart, right? Where we're not playing games with each other, that we are in honest relationship with each other, where we're not manipulating, using, tricking, taking advantage of, and advancing our own agenda, but that we are literally living from a clean conscience, so much so that we are able to speak truth to one another, that we would be willing to say true words of encouragement, true words of affirmation, but also true words of rebuke and true words of correction, right? It is a deeply beautiful contrast to the world around us, where you feel like everybody's playing games, everybody's wearing masks, everybody's playing a part, everybody's using everybody else to advance their own interest. It feels like it's hard to find anybody that's going to tell you the truth. It feels like it's hard to get people to level with you. It feels like maybe we live in this world that is more often than not characterized by evil and malice, and we are meant to be a stark contrast to that. But we have to get our relationship with the world right. Because even when I say some of what I just did, it sounds like, oh, right, so the church, what we do is we separate from the world and we stand back and we offer critique and criticism and condemnation and write blog posts and make sure that everybody who doesn't know Jesus understands exactly how screwed up they are. And as we do that and point out the error of their ways, that's going to solve everything. And there is a prophetic function to the church, don't get me wrong, but let's keep going and see what Paul says in terms of the church's relationship with the world. Right? And, and for this one, I'm going to jump back from the text for just a minute and point out what is not addressed at all in 1 Corinthians 5. What's conspicuously missing is one single word of condemnation directed at this woman who is obviously an equal participant in the sexual immorality that gives rise to the chapter. That is a massive contrast to John chapter 8 where religious leaders find a woman who was, quote, caught in the very act of adultery, which, yep, means exactly what you think it does, and she is dragged in front of Jesus I'm trying to figure out, do they get to stone her or not? But the man is nowhere to be seen because I guess boys will be boys, but she's got a problem here. Now, admittedly, different context. One is in Jerusalem. The other is in Corinth. And some of what happened in Jerusalem re reflected more um, contamination in terms of Jewish ethical thinking. But it wouldn't have been that different in Greece. Yet Paul says nothing. And the clear implication is this woman is not part of the community of faith. She's not part of the church. She's not a believer in Jesus. And Paul's like, what in the world am I going to do taking shots at her? Well, she, she's not part of this community of sincerity and truth. She just needs to know that there's grace and mercy for her. And if anything, she needs to know that this guy has done a hideous job of representing the kingdom of God to her. So he says nothing about her. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in a letter. Obviously, he has sent a previous letter to the Corinthians that doesn't make it into the canon of Scripture not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul's almost thinking out loud here where he's like, 
I did not mean the immoral people of this world. What are you crazy? You thought you're just like run away from the world and have nothing to do with anybody who has a different view of sexuality than you do? Are you insane? How in the world would you ever affect the broader community if you did that? How in the world could you live as the light of the world if you're like, uh-uh, you have the differences about sexual ethics for me? I can't have anything to do with you. He's like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to live in 21st century Washington? Washington and never have anything to do with a greedy person? You're still going to go to staff meeting, right? What are you going to do? Like have nothing to do with swindlers or idolaters? Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. That's just like a non-starter for Paul. He's like, no way. The church doesn't leave the world. He said, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral. The idea here is engaged in ongoing, serious, unrepentant immorality. Not somebody who stumbles into sin every once in a while, but somebody who is habitually living in sin and seeing absolutely no problem with it. Somebody who's living in sin and looking to the church to somehow validate, hey, look, see, what I'm doing can't be all that bad because I'm still seen as a good little Christian. Right? He's saying, no, no, within the church, you need to be willing to ask questions about sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, verbal abuse, our consumption of alcohol, or somebody who's trying to swindle other people. And again, we'll come back to this in a minute, not even to eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? You judge? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. What Paul is highlighting here, and it's so interesting because this was the trap 2,000 years ago in Corinth, and it seems like it's the trap that we're stuck in today, that as Christians, we can, in a sense, get it all wrong. We, We can completely reverse the equation where we are all too happy to be brutal in our condemnation of those who are outside the church, and we can be all too quick to break off friendship, fellowship, We're all too quick to pull back, to boycott, to block, to cancel, to write off, to say, man, I can't have anything to do with you. And Paul's like, no, that's not right. Particularly then we then say, okay, but on the other hand, right, if you're in the club, Man, we're really permissive with each other. Right? We'll brutalize our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, but we would never ask each other hard and searching questions. And Paul's like, man, reverse. You're way too quick to separate from the world, but not each other. You, you should be way more willing to stay patiently engaged with the world. And while you would never look to do this and you would never celebrate it, would you be willing to take a step back from another brother or sister in Christ as a way of saying, hey, I can't pretend that what you're doing is okay. I can't pretend that what you're doing is not a big deal. I can't pretend that what you're doing is consistent with Jesus. And I've tried all kinds of other things to awaken you to that. But ultimately, I'm going to be willing, we would be willing to take a step back, 
Not to shun you, not to banish you, not to have nothing to do with you, but to say, does this help you see that this thing that you don't think is a big deal, that it really might be a bigger deal? But man, we get it so wrong, right? It is way easier to blast the sin of the world at a distance than to ask questions about how much our hearts are controlled by greed and how much our hearts are controlled by idolatry and to ask questions of how often, even if it's not some sort of hideous, flagrant affair, how often we indulge little corners of lust in our own hearts and our own minds. And that can become so uncomfortable that we're like, nah, let's just go tear somebody up on Twitter today. That's easy. That's safe. That'll get me a lot of likes. And Paul's like, reverse. You guys got it all wrong. He wants the local church to believe that this vision of being a community of sincerity and truth in a world of evil and malice is right at the heart of what God's asking him to do, particularly in a city like Corinth, where there were so many people whose lifestyles were so far from God particularly in a city like D.C. where there are so many people whose lifestyles are so far from the heart of God. And he's saying, Restoration City, would you be a community of sincerity and truth in a world of evil and malice? And if we are com- motivated by that vision, if something in our hearts kicks loose around that vision, then he's like, well, you can see, though, that you're going to have to protect that vision. What we need to have the humility to see is that the greatest threat to that vision always comes from within the church. The greatest threat is not the evil wickedness and debauchery of the outside world. It's what Leonard Ravenhill said, that the greatest tragedy is a sick church in the midst of a lost and dying world. And he's saying, hey, we have to be willing to ask questions about our spiritual and relational and emotional health. We have to be willing to protect the vision which brings us back to our friend here, 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. If you look at the context and you look at the language in the original text, it's clear that this guy is in an ongoing sexual relationship with what you and I would call uh, his stepmom. Um, it is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing thing, and it is entirely likely that they are living together. It is also clear that this is a bit of an open secret. This is not the Corinthian elders coming to Paul and saying, hey, there is this thing happening in our church. We can't even figure, we can't even believe we're stunned. What should we do? This is Paul sitting most likely in Ephesus being like, hey, if you're wondering if anybody is knowing what's going on, I've heard about it all the way over here, right? And Paul is saying that, yes, not even those outside the church would condone this kind of thing. By the way, that is a 100% accurate representation of Greek culture that would have considered this a form of incest. And even in a world of very, very loose sexual ethics, they would have said, yeah, no, that's not okay. But Paul takes this. He's like, I'm sorry, community of sincerity and truth in a world of evil and malice. This guy is doing something crazy. And 
you guys are just turning a blind eye. You're just looking the other way. And he essentially spends the rest of the letter being like, how is that possible? How are you okay with that? Verse two, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing, right? Um, there are times as a parent where two or more of my children come to me and they're upset and I want to hear the backstory and I want to figure out like what happened and what did she do and what did he say and what happened? I want to like do the whole thing. And then there's other times as a parent where I'm like, da, 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 da. I don't care. There was not a reason for you to duct tape your sister to a tree. Like, I don't care. Nope. I don't care what she said. Do not duct tape her to a tree ever again, right? You're just like, I don't need to hear the backstory. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's like, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me that it's tricky. Don't tell me that it's complicated. Don't tell me, who am I? I don't know. I, you know, log in my eyes, speck in there. Like, what? He's like, stop it. This is wrong. And you should be addressing this. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. A couple of questions that come out of that passage, right? Um, It is clear that Paul's main concern here is the church's lack of response to serious ongoing sin. They're really just looking the other way, um, which begs the question, you're like, okay, I just got to ask just for a minute. Like, I understand it's largely irrelevant, but like, how are they okay with this? Like, I understand that like, we may be hesitant to ask each other questions about like the purity of your thought life, but for crying out loud, if we had somebody here who was like sleeping with his stepmom, I think we would do something about that. Like, what is wrong with these people? Um, I don't know for sure, but most scholars would agree that there's a really good chance that this man is a prominent member of the community. He's probably a patron, a benefactor, i.e. he's a big giver. And there's kind of this sense of like, yeah, but if we were to mess with him, what would happen, right? In a way that maybe we see things in the lives of celebrity pastors and we're like, yeah, it doesn't look great, but like, man, he can draw a crowd. So it must be Okay, there's a sense that like, man, we need this guy. He gives a lot of money, so maybe we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. It's also, and by the way, I would not in any way be condoning this, but it's also incredibly likely that there are some of what they would have perceived as like extenuating circumstances. It's very clear this is dad's second wife at the very least, maybe third or fourth. Really decent chance that she was significantly younger than dad, totally speculating, but it could be that she is closer to his age. Like maybe they even grew up together. By the way, dad is somehow out of the picture, whether he's dead or remarried or whatever. So there was just enough. Again, I'm not condoning any of that, but there's just enough that they were like, well, see, it's not that simple. right? And I guess my question is, are there any places when it comes to our own lives or our relationships with each other, that we're just too quick to make a couple of excuses and be like, well, it isn't quite what it looks like. And Paul and maybe even the Spirit of God this morning would say like, I think it's exactly what it looks like. You need to stop making excuses and deal with the reality of what's actually happening. There was just enough there for them to rationalize turning the other eye. Paul rebukes them for 
arrogance. He rebukes them not for being lazy, not for being selfish, not for having a cheap view of discipleship. He's like, y'all are arrogant. And I think the arrogance is that they somehow thought that they could hold out this vision of being a community of sincerity and truth and that somehow what this guy was up to wasn't going to detract from their witness in the world. That he was just a one-off, that people would look the other way, that it just wasn't that big a deal. And Paul's like, man, there is a stunning arrogance behind that. That you could on one hand pay lip service to this vision of the church, but then think you get to write the rule book of what is and is not a big deal, where you do and do not engage. He's like, man, you guys need to repent of the way you see yourselves and you need to repent of the ways that you have failed him. And oh, by the way, by extension, the ways that you have failed this woman. Paul wants little to do with churches that turn a blind eye to serious ongoing sin. I, I would probably go as far as to say the Spirit of God wants little to do with churches that turn a blind eye to serious ongoing sin. Yes, that applies to this form of sexual immorality, but it also applies to any form of abuse, right? whether it's physical, sexual, verbal, emotional, whether it's aimed at children, spouses, or staff, whether it's forms of institutionalized racism or corruption, or just things that organizations do to protect institutional power. Paul is warning churches that would fall into that trap, which could be any church at any time. He's like, man, y'all are playing with fire. You think you can turn the other way and still be faithful to God's vision for your functioning in the world. And he's like, it's not going to happen. If you believe in the vision, you got to be willing to protect it, which may mean that in love, you would do something that is enormously difficult both for this person who will not repent and for you as a community. It's going to hurt on both sides. This is not a callous letter basically imposing a religious restraining order and being like, can't come here. You're messy and nasty. No, no. It's saying we love you. We don't want this for you. You don't want this for you. You don't want this for your family. God doesn't want you for, want this for your family. And we're not going to pretend that it's okay. We would be willing to take a step back to underscore the importance of dealing with this. And I understand there's a question hanging out. You're like, okay, I get it. He starts in five by saying, you know, remove such a person from your midst. And I still want to talk more about like, how would we do that? But man, he, he starts at remove. He doesn't end there, right? I mean, like probably the most explosive little phrase in the whole chapter is hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. All right? And some of you were like, I was wondering if you were going to skip that part. I was tempted. <laughs> Believe me, it's, I'm over time already. Be like, oops, send me an email if you have questions. Um, but let's just do it all together, right? Um, you're like, yeah, that's a little hard. Some of you are like, I'm just curious. If one were to do that, has nothing to do with my ex-girlfriend, I promise you. I'm just curious. 
if you were going to hand somebody over to Satan? How exactly would you do that? And I guess the way I would answer the question is by telling you what Paul really is trying to communicate here. Paul sees a deeply protective function to Christian community. It's the kind of function that Peter articulates in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he could devour, right? Paul would have been a really big fan of Discovery Plus. Paul would have been a really big fan of National Geographic where you can go at 24-7 and find a herd of wildebeest that's being tormented by a pack of lions, right? And they all stay together and there's safety in the herd and all the lions trying to do is pick one little lone wildebeest off and there's dinner for a couple of days, right? Paul's view of the church is like, right, it's like a herd. There's safety in numbers staying together. And in that herd, this guy who is in serious spiritual trouble, this guy who is running the risk of contaminating the whole church, this guy who is undermining the vision, this guy is falling for the myth, the delusion that he can somehow escape the full consequences of his sin. So what Paul's really saying is, you know, we're not actively being like, hey, Satan, Bobby, Right over here. Come and get them. Like, make it hurt, buddy. No, it's more of like the herd of wildebeest being like, we're just going to take a step aside, and you are going to experience the natural consequences of your sin. We might say it. We're going to let you hit rock bottom. We're going to let this thing play out. We're not going to let you pretend like it's all cool when it's not all cool. That, that's what he means. He means withdrawing the protective function of the church, right? So, would we be willing to do something like this? I'm hoping by now the answer is clear of like, well, man, we better be. But how would we do it? Well, it would be less about public shaming and it would be less about total isolation and it would be less about we aren't going to have anything to do with you and it would be more about the spirit of what you see in verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, um, not even to eat with such a person. Would we potentially ask somebody not to come on a Sunday morning? Yeah, but it would be rare. It, it, it would be like, hey, couple's been coming to the church for a couple years. They're going through a divorce. She's seeking reconciliation and repentance. She's trying to patch the whole thing up, and he just wants nothing to do with it. There might be a sense where, like, as a community, we had to pick a side and be like, hey, we want to support her and the kids, and hey, buddy, I mean, we just can't pretend like what you're doing here is okay. Maybe it's, maybe it's a good idea for you to take a step back, right? But in general, we don't punish people by removing the opportunity to come and hear the Word of God. What we would look for is where are the places where we could um, bring about a sense of relational separation? So, like in our nine-year history of as a church, we have asked people to stop serving on particular ministry teams, right? Because that was like the crew. And that was like the people you hang out with. That was the people that you would eat with. That was the people, they're like, man, these are my friends and my peers. And we've been like, hey, there's some things going on. Man, like, we need you to step aside. We have been willing to do that. Um, would we be willing to say, hey, we just keep coming to a community group and doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Man, we need you to take a step back from this group. But we wouldn't just say, you know, you're out on your own. We might say, hey, we're going to ask you to take a step back from community group. And over those six weeks, I want you to meet one-on-one with me because we've got to deal with what's happening. Or, hey, man, we're going to ask you to take a step back from community group because what we really need you to do is go to see a therapist because there's some things going on in your life that you need some help that's beyond what this group can give you. 
Right? So would we be willing to take a step like this? Yes. I, and, and hopefully now you're like, okay, I get that. Right? Nobody loves that. Nobody's like, oh, that's my favorite part about being part of a church. But it is a way of saying, hey, I actually do believe that our vision is worth protecting. So hopefully that gives you a better sense of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. As the band comes back up to stage, I just want to offer a couple of very specific, very practical thoughts for us. Number one, the issue here is that this man is in a pattern of sin and he refuses to do anything about it. The clearest application, the best application of this text is if you're in trouble, if you're struggling, come talk to me. Shoot me an email. Let's get coffee, right? This is kind of, 1 Corinthians 5 is like somebody digging in their heels and being like, I'm not changing. There is so much grace and mercy and love and forgiveness for the brother or sister who raises their hand and says, I am in a world of trouble and I'm in trouble that I never thought I would be in. You don't have to be afraid that we're gonna turn our back from you. You need to know that we will surround you and that the herd of wildebeest will come and be like, man, we wanna help you find life and freedom in God. So if you're struggling, man, come talk to me. It does push us towards relational depth, doesn't it? It's a very weird commercial for community groups, but it is. Because Paul's envisioning a community where both sides would actually feel pain if they had to take a step back. Right? We live in a world where it's way too easy to anonymously float between churches and be like, man, I didn't like the third song. I'll just find a new church. Paul's envisioning something very differently. And it does force us to ask questions about what we're doing here on a Sunday. Are we just attending a religious event or are we actually working together to create a community of sincerity and truth? Just some thoughts to think about over the course of the week. Father in heaven, this isn't easy, God, but it's in your word and I believe that all scripture is profitable. God, I want to pray particularly for anybody who is new to church or who is coming back the church for the first time in a while and is feeling like, can't, oh, it's confusing. God, would you help that person see the beauty of a God who would go and die in our place and the beauty of a God who loves us too much to allow us to make a wreck of our lives? God, for those of us who are wondering whether we send the email, have the conversation, raise our hand and say, I'm in trouble, would you help us to err on the side of vulnerability versus the side of playing it safe? God, would you knit us together into a community that truly reflects your character to the world around us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.